0: Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit timblebiblechurch.org. Good morning. Welcome back to our Bible study of Mark. I really miss uh, seeing your smiling faces in this room, but I just want you to know I am so encouraged. Uh, from the reports that I'm hearing about your discussion groups and how you guys are innovating ways to meet Thank you so much uh, for working hard at continuing to meet together. I do have a couple of announcements for us this morning. Um, We are continuing our Foster Love Bell County project. Uh, We are collecting lots and lots of items for those snack bags here at Creekside in the lobby. There are two big trash cans with a label on them please stop by and and drop off a donation whenever you can. We're gonna be putting those bags together our first day back here at the building, uh, Thursday, February 25th. So I'm looking forward to that. But I also wanna tell you about another opportunity that we have. Um, TBC as a whole is reaching out locally to our area nursing homes and assisted living facilities and we are going to bless them with homemade Valentine's cards. And we need 500 of those. Right now we have about 350. And so we need 150 more homemade Valentine cards. So I'm putting this call out to you guys because I know that you will come through. Really want them to be homemade uh, with a a message of encouragement for someone in one of our local nursing homes or assisted living facilities. You can come also and drop those off here in the lobby of Creekside. There's a box and a sign that says Valentine's Project. So I hope that you can help us in that endeavor. Okay, we are continuing uh, learning memory verses together. And so we have a new verse this week. We'll have the same verse next week. And as our call to worship, I want wherever you're standing, wherever you are, um, I want you to stand up. So there's a few people here in this, in this room. Let's all stand up. We are going to um, say this verse together. This is from Mark 2, verse 17. All right, it's not clicking again. There we go. Okay, let's say this together, friends. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous but sinners all right you can have a seat I am excited to introduce our speaker for today Um, she is a good friend of mine and I know that you are going to be blessed by what she has to share so I'm going to call Julie Mahler up on the stage And I'm going to pray for Julie, and she's going to share with us. So let's join me in prayer, please. God, we just praise your name. We're so thankful for what you have taught us in this section of Mark this week in our personal time. What you've taught us as we've discussed it with our friends this morning. And God, we're looking forward to you speaking to us through Julie, what you have given her, what you have taught her. And we just look forward, God, to um, to hearing from you. So would you just move Julie out of the way so that we can hear from you. At the same time, God, would you give her courage and give her wisdom and, and just confidence and sharing what you have put on her heart. God, we are so blessed um, to have sisters in Christ and to hear from them in this venue. So we just give you we, we want to hear from her, but we want to give you all glory and honor and praise. So thank you for what you will teach us. We love you in Jesus name. Amen.
1: Thank you. <clears throat> well, welcome to all of you in live land. And welcome to my sweet group of friends who are here with me today in this big, empty auditorium. I hope your time together in your group was rich. And for those of you meeting in homes, isn't that just the best thing? We had such a great time last week when we did it. For those of you who... Don't know me. Oh, it's not working. There we go. Now we're working. My name is Julie Mahler, and I grew up in Belton and married my high school sweetheart almost 30 years ago. We have three kids, Caroline, Matt, and Emily, and 2020, albeit a really hard year, it gave us the most beautiful wedding of our oldest the wedding date was April 17th and if you can remember back to that time we were under a county-wide mandate of no gatherings greater than 10. So we had no choice but to shrink drastically shrink the wedding but God was so good and it was so beautiful and so intimate and if given the choice I would definitely choose it again So, I'm going to run through my family pictures from our wedding. This is Mark and Caroline here. This is Emily, our youngest. She is a freshman in college, so yes, we are empty nesters. Marcus on the left is Caroline's new husband. He is such a neat guy. She met him at Baylor, and they live in Fort Worth, and Matt on the right is about to graduate from Baylor, and he is now engaged to Allie, who is on the far left. Um, Going over to the right, my mom is in the blue dress. My dad passed away 18 years ago, and then on the far right is Mark's brother, Michael. He was able to play the guitar for the wedding, so it was really sweet to be able to, to get him in. So our lesson this week was titled, The Man Who Fits No Formula, and I added, The Pharisees, The Tax Collector, and The Saving Formula of Grace. Since his very first days of ministry, Jesus spoke and acted with authority. He had authority over demons and he had authority over disease. And the return of Jesus promises to bring restoration to our souls and to our bodies, which will be a glorious day. But right now, with everything happening with COVID and everything else going on, we are quickly reminded that the world is broken and things are not as they should be. It was C.S. Lewis who famously said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When we go deaf or become spiritually hard of hearing, it's pain that wakes us up. And now in this moment when everyone, it seems, is awake and listening, we don't want to miss the tender, merciful, grace-filled message of Christ found in these verses today and the opportunity to share it and to be it to others. In addition to the two previous inter- interactions with Jesus that Rachel shared last week, and in addition to the three that we covered today in group, all five collectively describe Jesus' confrontation with this religious group of leaders, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were committed to being separated from the secular world. They were, in many ways, the conservative movement in Judaism, leaders in the Jewish faith, and they were committed to perfecting the practice of righteousness. They were described many times as experts in the law, and foundational to these Pharisees was a commitment to the written law, the law of Moses, the Torah, And the oral law, which would be the traditions and the interpretations of the Torah, these two things were most important to them, but it was their commitment to the, let me find it, to the oral traditions, the interpretation of the law that brought them into conflict with Jesus time and time again. Now, from all appearances, you would see a Pharisee as a very godly person. They were committed to reading and believing and practicing what God's law instructed. But that being said, Jesus makes it clear that of all of their commitment to read God's word faithfully and to even practice it faithfully, they are revealed as people who read it quite wrongly. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Basically, he's saying, you love the scriptures, but you've missed the whole point of it. In Jesus' view, the Pharisees were pretenders. Later, in Mark chapter 7, we will see Jesus telling the Pharisees um, that the prophet Isaiah was really talking about them. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You worship me in vain. Your teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. And near the end of his ministry, Jesus will get very bold and very direct, and he will expose these Pharisees who had been troubling him over the three years of ministry by saying, you guys are externally clean, but you're internally dead. He says in Matthew 23, 27, "'Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! "'For you are like whitewashed tombs, "'though outwardly appear beautiful, "'but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness.'" Pretty, direct. "'Those whom everyone thought were the faithful ones, "'he exposes as unfaithful. "'Those who appeared pure,' Jesus exposes as not clean. And to make matters worse, as you see his interactions, Jesus exposes their pride as he draws near to those who appear unclean and unsafe. Those people are the people that Jesus gravitates towards. And we have no better example than the calling of Levi. Levi is also known as Matthew. His name has led some to believe that he was a member of the Levitical tribe of all things. But instead, he abandoned that pursuit and pursued a more lucrative career, serving a king who was not God, but was devoted to Herod at the time and the Roman Empire. He served as a tax collector and would sit at a booth daily in Jesus' home base of Capernaum, And Matthew would have been very well-educated and extremely wealthy. He would have been quite greedy and much despised. The tax collectors were Hebrews working for the Roman government. And so as a group of people, the tax collectors had been excommunicated from the synagogue. They were known as thieves, lawless, and immoral. They were known as so corrupt that they were not allowed to participate in any work of the court. Now, I would propose to you that there wouldn't be very many of us, if we were going to choose 12 people to bring the gospel to the world, that we would have had Levi on our short list. And I think that says something. There is something so powerful about this moment when Christ looks at this despicable, immoral man who literally stands for everything that's opposite of what Jesus came to do and produce. And Jesus looks at this man, and he actually sees potential. Now, I'm not talking about Levi's potential What Jesus sees is the radical, transforming, life-altering, God-glorifying potential of grace. This is the man whose very lifestyle gave you no hint that he would have any spiritual interest whatsoever. This Jesus is about to call Levi away from everything that has excited him in life. And you would expect Levi to say, yep, thanks, I'll pass but he follows. You know why? Grace. Grace gives this man the ability to respond in this moment. Grace opens his eyes. Grace moves his heart. Grace changes his thinking. Grace changes his desires, and this man runs after Jesus. What an amazing thing. None of us would be doing Bible study this morning if we're not for one thing and one thing alone grace. We are not here because we're smart or holy or have the right desires or theological. All that stuff is baloney. We have been rescued from ourselves by divine grace. And just like Levi, it is shocking. That God would have called any of us a shocking miracle of grace. The first act of grace rescue in my life happened before I was even born. In 1968, I was in the womb of an unwed high school girl who I imagine was scared, humiliated, and thought her life was over. By God's grace, she moved to the Methodist Mission Home in San Antonio to live and to go to school and to prepare her heart and mind for my birth and closed adoption, meaning we would never see one another again. His tremendous hand of grace continued with my placement in the home of Jim and Liz Cowan, who were having great trouble Getting pregnant, and who, by the multiple retellings of my father every time on my birthday, they were so excited when they picked me up that they left everything else behind that the mission home had provided for them the diaper bag, the bottles. But you see, they had what they'd come for me. And in their excitement, nothing else mattered. And I had done nothing remarkable or impressive, to earn their choosing. They loved me and chose me before we had even met. And this transformation, well, let me go back. What a beautiful picture of grace in action. As Jesus looks at this man, Levi, and says, This man, by grace, can be usable to me. And grace yanks Levi out of his booth and after Jesus. The transformation of Levi is evident in his bringing of Christ to his home. The fact that Levi even wants him there is an amazing thing. Because before this, Jesus would have been seen as a real buzzkill to Levi and his friends. But it's clear in him bringing him home that he wants to celebrate his newfound Messiah. And he wants to introduce Jesus to his friends. And who are his friends? Well, pretty bad company. And I don't know if it shocks you or not, but Jesus is quite comfortable there. These are the people he came for. We don't see Jesus worrying about his reputation or playing it safe. Jesus is quite willing to be with the sinners and the tax collectors because they're the reason he came to earth. And they're the reason he goes to the cross. Also in the room that evening are the scribes, these religious lawyer-type theologians. And as you know, they ask the most amazing question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pastor Paul Tripp proclaims that this has to be one of the most arrogant questions ever asked because the only way that you can ask the question, why does he eat with sinners? is if you have concluded that you're not one. Jesus' response, our memory verse, in 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the Pharisees for sure did not see themselves as sick, nor in need of a physician, Jesus characterizes himself as a doctor doing the work of saving the sick and only the sick. And while he has already proven that he could quite literally heal physical disease, the interaction with the paralytic that Rachel covered last week, where he could have just as easily said, hey, get up and walk. Instead, he begins with, your sins are forgiven. Revealing that even at the core of our physical brokenness, is a deeper issue, which is namely sin. That our sickness is truly spiritual. Jesus came to save sinners by healing their hearts. And while these Pharisees regard themselves as righteous, as clean, as spiritually healthy, they are in reality quite sick. In today's lingo... We could even say that the Pharisees are asymptomatic. Their symptoms may not be obvious yet, but they are infected with a deadly disease that, left untreated, will lead to something worse than death. They are not desperate for a physician, and that's because they believe their religious excellence would save them. Their capacity to be righteous would protect them from God's wrath but self-righteousness crushes ministry and the desire to seek and celebrate grace. Grace is only ever exciting to a sinner. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he's not teaching some new and improved way of being or doing good. While he does have much to say about moral living, it's not why Jesus came. This is really not at the core of what he taught. He actually preached that death comes to all who sin, but salvation to all who surrender, and this salvation cannot be earned. And this is why it's so troubling for the Pharisees that Jesus refuses to follow the traditional ways like themselves. They are upset that Jesus Jesus doesn't fast like the traditions that they have. His men don't fast like their men. His men don't fast like John's disciples. But biblically, if you were to read the scriptures, you would see that the law of God suggests actually only one fast once a year around the Day of Atonement. But over the years, God's people started creating different fasts commemorating experiences and certain events, and though well-intended, which most traditions begin that way, these traditions multiplied, and they grew in frequency over time. And at the time of Christ, these fasts were at their climax, and the Pharisees encouraged people to fast a couple of times a week. And as you read the Gospels, you realize pretty quickly That their fasting was less about worshiping God and more about impressing people with their piety. In Matthew, Jesus condemns people for fasting with such glum faces. Matthew 6.16, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show others they are fasting. They wanted to make a big deal. They wanted people to see that they're righteous. And truly, in their view, their religion and faith in God was something solemn, was something designed to be uncomfortable. When asked why his disciples were not fasting, Jesus provides an interesting metaphor, a wedding, and in doing so, he totally contrasts his view of spirituality with theirs. And he shows that his experience is comparable to a wedding, like the joy of a wedding feast, being in the presence of a groom. That's supposed to be a time of joy, a time of celebration with God and family. You see, ancient Jewish weddings didn't actually have honeymoons as we understand them today, but a week-long house party. And the friends of the bride and groom would never fast on this occasion because they were responsible to, to, in, to ensure that the party continues for the whole week. That was their job, to create joy and celebration and remove whatever hindrances might make things uncomfortable or glum. Jesus provides additional images to explain how strange it would be for his disciples to fast. One image, famously, is about a new cloth that is sewn onto an old garment, and it shrinks and it tears the old garment. Another is about new wine being poured into old wineskins and how the old wineskins burst because the wine being in a state of fermentation causes that to happen. The metaphor here is one of compatibility. Christ is saying your way of thinking about tradition is utterly incompatible with the gospel of the kingdom because your way of thinking about these things relies on human effort and human righteousness and human strength and the gospel of the kingdom is going in a completely different direction and you cannot combine those. If you put those two together, the gospel will be destroyed You cannot layer the gospel over traditionalism. You can't do that. The gospel must be kept pure. Our hope must be in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is revealing that he is doing something new, something different, that's not going to fit into their traditional framework of man-made ritual, a ritual that's going to be replaced by relationship that they never could have imagined, an intimacy and communing with God that they never thought possible. Now, I I know the Pharisees are getting a pretty bad rap here, and some of their Pharisaical traditions may have helped these men to draw closer to God. But for many more, it seems like these extra-biblical traditions had become a God unto themselves. They had become more supreme than the supremacy of Christ, and that's where Christ confronts them. The inherent danger in man-made traditions is pretty obvious because they go from a simple tradition to a law. After multiple interactions, the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus intensifies into a full climax with a confrontation over the fourth commandment, of God's law and that is simply to remember the Sabbath. Now this command helped organize the weekly life of a Jewish family. In the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition or interpretation of that law that was eventually written down, it provided commentary on what it meant to observe the day of rest. And that makes sense because the law only says remember the Sabbath to keep it holy without any explanation of what that means. So of course, religious leaders were going to give commentary to what it means, and so it must mean this, and it must mean that, and so what unfolded were all kinds of rules around the law to inform how to practice the law. So they had upwards of 40 different categories of activity that was forbidden on the day of rest, things you couldn't do. This included carrying stuff, burning stuff, Cooking, writing, erasing, untying, shaping, plowing, spinning, reaping, all kinds of things. You can only walk 1,999 steps because 2,000 would be considered work. Women, we're told not to bathe or look into a mirror. Because you may see a gray hair and be horrified and reach to pluck it out and that would be work. So it's better on the Sabbath not to know that you're aging. We had the opportunity to travel with TBC to Israel. And this pic cracks me up every time. Now, you don't know what's going on in the picture, but I know what's going on. And it's our first Sabbath morning in Israel, and we didn't realize it. You know, we're on vacation. And Mark is trying to get his morning coffee. He's confused as to why the coffee machines have a covering over them. And if you look in the picture, he's pulled one cover over the back coffee machine, pushed all the buttons, tried to get it to work. It worked the day before. It worked the day before that. It's not working. So now he's moving on to the next one. He has his package of sweetener. He's about to hopefully get this second one going. What you don't see is the little Jewish boy to the right heckling him. And laughing at him he was so confused and it was hilarious the truth of the matter is that legalism never elevates God's law legalism reduces God's law it diminishes God's law it has to do that because it makes God's law into a humanly doable standard So we reduce it and we reduce it and we reduce it until it becomes a list of do's and don'ts that we can all keep. And as we keep them, we rise in pride and we condemn all the people who don't. This is dangerous. These rules distort the Sabbath and move it away from the joyful, holy, merciful excitement that we would have as God welcomes us to worship him by his grace He welcomes us into his presence by his work. We could never achieve it on our own. Now, as Jesus' disciples are traveling through Galilee on the Sabbath, they are plucking wheat, crushing the heads, and eating the grains of wheat. The Pharisees would look at that and they would say, they are harvesting, they are farming, that's work. Because that's the way they looked at God's law. And so, interestingly, Jesus responds to these Bible thumpers with a Bible story that we covered last fall in our study of Samuel. He tells the Pharisees about King David, who, when he was in need at one point, before he had become king, he actually went into the house of God and ate the holy bread. The holy bread was there by design, put there every week and replaced on the sabbath only to be eaten by priest and yet he feasted in his need this is why jesus says the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath jesus is literally arguing it's shocking to the pharisees that the preservation of human life is more valuable than ceremony you see the pharisees got it wrong They got it completely wrong. And if David was able to do this along with the priest without reprimand from God, then there is nothing wrong with what his disciples are doing. He reminds the Pharisees that the fourth commitment and really all of God's law was designed as a blessing. The God who knows the limits of our strength Gives to us a day where, without being irresponsible, we can rest from our labor. He also knows that worship can be a battle for our time and energy. And so, the designating of a day for us to turn our hearts intentionally to worship Him is another grace gift. But the Pharisees have turned this particular part of the law, which is supposed to be a blessing, Into a great burden. This confrontation reaches a climax in chapter three when Jesus goes into the synagogue. And the Pharisees are watching because remember, it's still the Sabbath. They've watched him pluck the heads of grain, and now he heads into the synagogue where there is a man with a withered hand. And we don't know if this is a setup, but we do know that their intention is to bring him down. Is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? Is he going to do a work? Jesus senses what they are doing, and he asks them flat out, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save it or to kill it? But they are silent. And verse 5 of chapter 3 says, he looked around at them, angered and grieved at their hardness of heart, And he says to the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. From this point, the Pharisees work with their political enemies, the Herodians, to try to destroy Jesus. They have become so blinded by their own interpretation of the Bible that it is noteworthy that they don't even give one thought to the man whose hand is healed. They are so blinded by their theology and their particular interpretation of the Sabbath that they cannot even celebrate the miracle that has just happened in front of their face. In fact, it makes them want to destroy the miracle worker. Legalism is first a condition of the heart. It's rooted in self-righteousness. It's rooted in pride and that pride and self-righteousness always leads to the condemnation of others legalism would rather celebrate principle than meet the needs of people legalism in its pride is self-righteous legalism in its pride of self-righteousness lacks mercy it lacks grace and it lacks compassion and Jesus looks at these men with righteous anger and says, you are the religious leaders of your day, but you're getting it all wrong. And rather than weep for this man with a withered hand, you see this as a moment to advance your legalism. Self-righteousness gets it wrong. But it's noteworthy that even though it angers Jesus, These men who believe that their self-righteousness is based on perfect performance, and then they put that burden on others. He was angry about that, but he was also grieved at their hardness of heart, and he wants to save them too. So I had to ask myself, as I look at these interactions, do I identify more with the tax collector Do I identify more with the diseased and disabled and just want Jesus to help me? Or do I identify with the Pharisee at times? And the answer is a resounding yes, all of them. Whether we realize it or not, we are in a constant daily habit of self assessment and self evaluation. We are always examining ourselves. We are always evaluating ourselves. And this incessant internal conversation is not necessarily a bad thing, but by God's grace, it can lead us to good places of confession and repentance. Salvation comes to those who are willing to stretch out their hand and admit you cannot fix yourself to admit that you are more dirty than you could ever cleanse, that you are more desperate and sick and in need of a physician to heal your soul. No one gives grace better than a person who is deeply persuaded that she needs it herself. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, We confess our utter need for grace, that we have nothing in ourselves that could achieve acceptance with you, and that we have no ability to move towards you, and no ability in a way that would please you. Our only hope is your grace. And yet, having said that, we confess that self-righteousness is always crouching at our door. We pray that you would rescue us from that self-righteousness and that we would run to the cross again and again and again and find your grace there in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.